the central figure of all time. From eternity past to eternity future. Hebrews chapter 1. Would you find Hebrews chapter 1, also chapter 2 in your copy of the scripture. And stand with me for the reading of God's word please. Christ, the central figure of all time. We're continuing the message from last week. Picking up where we left off. The writer says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his mouth. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you're the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Lord, speak to us now. We ask your Holy Spirit to take your word. And Lord, to illuminate our hearts and minds that we might more fully understand your word and your great love that you have for us, that you've shown us in your son. 
And God, today we pray for any who might be here that don't know Christ. Lord, I pray that you would use my words, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction to their lives and bring them to Christ. And Lord, may all of us, as we hear these words out of Hebrews this morning, may we all ask ourselves, If even in subtle ways, we have allowed our affections to drift to something other than Christ. Lord, if so, forgive us. Renew our passion to know you, to love you, to worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I mentioned last week that the book of Hebrews deals with Christology. Christology sounds like a big word, but folks, in essence, all Christology is, is the doctrine of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything more important in a Christian's life than to let his mind and his heart dwell on issues of Christology. Again, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So how are we to think about Christ? What is our opinion of him to be? What are our convictions of Christ to be? Folks, I I hope and I trust that we will think biblically about Jesus Christ. In recent surveys among Americans, according to Lifeway Research... And also, according to Pew Research, it is pretty sad and very tragic and disturbing what Americans, even American evangelicals, are thinking today about Jesus. According to these surveys, if they can be trusted, a significant percentage of even churchgoers now believe that Jesus Christ sinned. I'm not quite sure how anyone who believes that could even describe themselves as being a Christian because you're most certainly not one if we take the Bible seriously. I think pastors have to take a portion of the blame. We've oftentimes failed to to preach messages that actually deal with the text of Scripture. While on sabbatical, we went to one of the largest churches in Charlotte, probably 8,000 attendees, five or six campuses. They have a pastor, a, a very loved pastor in Charlotte who's been there probably 40, 45 years at that one church. He wasn't there that Sunday. 
The associate pastor got up to preach. He opened his Bible. He read the scripture. He laid the Bible aside. He virtually never came back to the scripture at all. And he preached one of these feel-good messages. Essentially, how to be a better you. How to be a more successful you. Now, that wasn't his topic, obviously. That's my take on it. When we left and were walking through the lobby, I was looking for a kiosk. I said, Connie, I feel like I need to take my bank card and I need to swipe it at one of those kiosks and I need to pay for our insurance for a group therapy session that we just heard. Because that was basically what the message was. And so, yes, I do blame pastors for not preaching the Bible. Pastors usually support one another tooth and nail because we understand what pastors go through. Until you've been one, you have no idea the daily pressures that pastors face. And so, yes, generally speaking, pastors defend pastors. But folks, I must say that I find it very troubling when pastors do not preach the Word of God. Dr. Michael Horton of Westminster Theological Seminary, the uh, the California campus of that school, says that the Christianity of the American church is now therapeutic, moralistic, Deism. Therapeutic, moralistic deism. In other words, there's a higher power out there and he's there to make you happier and to give you a more successful life. Just do these three steps or do these five steps. Dr. Horton says that what we are now seeing is Christless Christianity. Now folks, talk about an oxymoron. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? Christless Christianity. But sadly, I think Dr. Horton is dead on with his description. In the church, we are to worship and serve and glorify none other than Jesus Christ. We are to make much of him. I used to love the little placards that would be on pulpits when you would go to different churches and preach. There would be a little placard out of the Gospel of John that said, Sir, we would see Jesus. In other words, preacher, give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. Actually, early on in the church, the person and work of Jesus Christ was sometimes challenged by false teachers. And this should be no surprise to us at all. Because if you were the devil, what would you attack? You would attack the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ and that's exactly what the devil has done and so in response to these attacks the church would produce creeds which were doctrinal statements in summation you had the apostles creed the Nicene creed 
the Athanasian Creed. You had the Chalcedonian Creed uh, of A.D. 451. I've given you a copy of that creed in your sermon notes. It's never been edited or amended. It's generally believed that it's such a good statement, it doesn't need anything added to it. It's received today by by Roman Catholics, by the Orthodox Church, and also by Protestant churches. Take your sermon notes page and read it with me for a moment because I want you to see what it says. It, It says, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Of a reasonable soul and body. You say, what's that mean of a reasonable soul? It means that if you had been alive during the days of Jesus, and there Jesus was, a two-year-old, a two-year-old little toddler, and if you walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell me, what, what's, uh, there's a guy by the name of Einstein that's going to live centuries from now. Tell me what Einstein's theory of relativity is, is going to be. Would Jesus say, well, sit right here on this rock and let me tell you all about it? Of course not. What would Jesus do? Jesus would do what a typical two-year-old would do. In other words, he was of a rational mind, a reasonable mind. Co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead. Co-essential with us according to the manhood. And all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation. Born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Now granted some have made too much of that statement. But the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. According to the manhood, one and the same Christ. Son, Lord, only begotten. To be acknowledged in two natures. Inconfusedly unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurrent in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, And only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. A wonderful statement about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Again, the early church made these statements so that they could defend biblical belief about Jesus. Now last week we began looking at this first chapter in the book of Hebrews. We saw last week how God is a speaking God. He has revealed himself to us. He has spoken and thank God that he has done so because if God did not take the initiative and speak, you and I would have no hope whatsoever of ever knowing him. God spoke in the past through the prophets 
at many times and in many ways. But the writer goes on to say here, in these last days he has spoken to us through a son. Again, we covered that last week. Today we're going to pick up, we're going to continue. I pointed out last week that what we see in our text today is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate way in which God has communicated to the human race. We're going to keep going with that same thought. We saw last week the activity of the Father. Today I want to pick up and look secondly at the accolades of the Son. The accolades of the Son. He points out here that Jesus is superior to the prophets and Jesus is superior to the angels. Some people today want to say that Jesus was just a prophet. No, he's better than the prophets. He's superior to the prophets. Look at the way he's described in these verses. And let me answer a question right up front related to these verses that I'm going to come back to at the end. As we go through these different statements about Jesus, you might be sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with me today? It has everything to do with you. The writer is pointing out that there should be no substitute in your life for Jesus Christ. If there is anything in your life, whether another person, a hobby, a possession, anything that you are giving your ultimate time and energy and devotion to, you have made a very poor choice. In fact, you've made a sinful choice. If there's anything in your life that is taking your devotion and affections away from Jesus Christ, then you are nothing more than a modern day idolater. There can be no substitute for Jesus Christ. And by the way, he's the only one that can satisfy the longings in your heart. He's the only one that can give you the peace that you are looking for. If you're going out looking for peace, it's always going to elude you. But if you will go out and look to Jesus, then you'll also get the peace that only he can supply. Only Jesus can set you free from your sin and guilt. Only Jesus can reconcile you to a holy God. No wonder John the Baptist said... He must increase, I must decrease. Okay, let's get back to our text. I want you to notice the statements that he makes about Christ. Look at what he says in verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Heir. What is that? It is a title of dignity. Who owns everything? Who is the rightful possessor of everything? Jesus. 
When Jesus went back to the right hand of God, he simply went back to what had always been his rightful place. In Psalm 2, the scripture says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The scripture says that God the Father is putting all things underneath the feet of the Son. Throughout history, that's what the Father is doing, putting all things in subjection to the Son. Now added to that, notice what the writer of Hebrews says next. Through whom also he made the world. We started looking at the book of Genesis this past Wednesday. Genesis 1-1 begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians 1 tells us that it was actually through the Son that God made everything. In Colossians 1, the Bible says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for him and so the son was the agent of creation he is both the heir and the agent of creation he's both folks what do these statements communicate again it communicates that all things are rightfully his The word for world here doesn't simply refer to the material world, but it's the word that encompasses time and space and energy and matter. In other words, everything belongs to the Son. Christ created the universe and everything, and and He makes it function. He's the heir and the agent of creation. And you know what that means? He is your rightful owner also. The Bible says you've been bought with a price. You're to glorify God in your body. He goes on here to say he is the radiance of God's glory. He makes that statement in verse 3. The glory of God can be seen in Jesus. Let me give you an analogy here. And granted, it's an analogy and most analogies are weak. They, they break down somewhere, but, but let me give you an analogy. Think of the sun and the rays of light and heat that the sun puts off. Picture a dark night the next morning. Maybe you're at the beach looking out over the ocean at sunrise or the mountains and you're looking out at the mountains uh, over uh, at, at, at sunrise. And, and there the sun appears to be rising. Of course, we know, again, it's just the earth rotating. But anyway, the sun appears to be rising and, and it casts its brilliant rays over the pond or over the ocean or the mountains and across the fields and what a beautiful sight it is to see 
Is there any way to separate the rays of light from the sun itself? No. Well, what the rays of light are to the sun, Jesus is to the Father. He is the radiance of his glory. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say he is the exact representation of his nature. The the phrase exact representation is the rendering of a word that referred to a stamp or a die. You would stamp something and it would leave the representation of the stamp. Think of modern day coin making such as what they do at the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. They take a die with a recessed image on it not a raised image, a recessed image. They stamp the blank. Let's say it's a penny that they're stamping. And the recessed blank leaves a raised image on the face of the penny. The exact image on the die is left on the uh, penny. The image on the die and the image on the coin are identical. And yet the die and the penny are separate. Well, even so, the Heavenly Father and His Son Jesus are two distinct personalities of the Trinity, and yet the Son is the exact representation of the Father. Now, folks, that statement about Jesus goes even further than the former statement because this statement says that the one who reflects God's glory shares his nature. And that's when Jesus was, you remember when Jesus was asked on one occasion, show us the Father, Jesus responded by saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You could have never made that statement about a man, a mere man like a prophet in the Old Testament, and certainly you couldn't make that statement about an angel, but it is said about the Son. Now folks, don't make the mistake when you think about the Godhead. Don't make the mistake of modalism, which is a a heretical version of the Trinity. Modalism says that God's just showed up in different modes across history. Like, for instance, in the Old Testament, he was Father. In the New Testament, he was the Son. In, In the church age now, he is the Holy Spirit. He's just showed up in different modes. No, the Bible makes clear that the Godhead has eternally existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Different personalities that make up the Godhead. But one God. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Then he goes on to say here, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uphold here means carrying along. It is the same Greek word that that Mark uses in Mark chapter 2 when there was a paralyzed man on a mat and there were four men who picked up each corner of the mat and they began carrying, they began upholding and carrying that paralytic man along and they took him to Jesus. They were upholding him and carrying in him. Same word used here. He upholds all things by the word of his power. 
Jesus is upholding the whole created order. He's creator. He's sovereign. But folks, don't miss this. He is intimately involved. Intimately involved of all things in this universe. He is not the God of the deist, the clockmaker God. You know, you make a clock, you wind it up, you set it up on a shelf and you walk away from it and you, and you forget about it. No. He made the universe, but he continues to be involved. He upholds everything and he's carrying everything along as he so desires. In fact, Jesus said the Father, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so intimately involved in this universe and in, in this creation that not even a little sparrow falls to the earth. Without the Father knowing all about it. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that's why you don't have to be filled with anxiety about everything in your life. Because if, if God made you, which is the bigger thing, he'll look after the life that he created, which is the lesser thing. An argument from the greater to the lesser. He will look after that which he's made. And you know what? That frees us up to know that Jesus Christ is upholding us and he's carrying us along. He's intimately involved in our lives in fact every hair on your head is numbered notice he does this by the word of his power just like at creation he spoke and it was so it continues that way and then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say when he made purification for sins. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. Wherever man is conscious of sin, he desires to be forgiven. He desires to be cleansed. Now oftentimes men will try to do something on their own to deal with their sin. And their attempts always fail, but Jesus never fails. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says Jesus made propitiation for our sins. In chapter 8, verse 12, it says Jesus took care of the putting away of our sins. In chapter 9, verse 15, it says he brought about redemption from sins. In chapter 9, verse 28, it says he bore our sins. In chapter 10, verse 12, it says he made sacrifice for our sins. And in chapter 10, verse 18, it says he made an offering for our sins. In other words, whatever happened to be done with sin he did it amen whatever had to be done he did it and he did it in a final and complete way he's purified us he's cleansed us he made purification. He, he, goes, he says right here, the tense is aorist, meaning it's past, it's complete. What Christ did on the cross, he made purification for our sins. I think of the little boy who came forward in church one day and said, Pastor, I want to be saved. And he went on to say, Pastor, I've done my part and Jesus has done his part. Pastor said, Son... Ah, salvation is all of the Lord. And the little boy said, no, I did my part. I did the sinning. And Jesus did his part. Jesus did the saving. 
Verse 3, he goes on to say, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Folks, remember those priests in the Old Testament? The priests were always standing, offering sacrifices. Why? Because there was always one more sacrifice to offer. Because those sacrifices were incomplete. And so they had to be done and redone and redone and redone. And so the priests were always standing, always offering another sacrifice. But not so with Jesus. His saving work is done. He he doesn't need to come back and do Calvary all over again. The sacrifice of his own body that he made was once for all sufficient. And so when he ascended to the Father, the text says he sat down at the right hand of God. But let me add to that a minute. Because in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, remember in in Stephen's speech before he was stoned to death. You remember what Stephen said? I I saw Jesus standing. And so as far as looking after us, it's as though he's standing. He's constantly watching. He's carrying us along. He's looking after us. But as far as making redemption for our sins, he sat down because his work is finished. Remember what he said from the cross? Tetelestai, meaning what? It is finished. He sat down. He goes on to point out here that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now somebody might wonder why the writer of Hebrews is going on and on and on so much in chapter 1 about angels. Were they having some kind of problem back then worshiping angels? That's, that's not really the point. Well, it, it might have been the point to some degree. You see, out, out in the Dead Sea area, the Qumran community, maybe you've read about the Qumran community, the Essenes priest. They had grown disillusioned by temple worship in Jerusalem. They'd gone out around the Dead Sea and they'd formed this monastic community and they were very, very strict. Some people believe maybe John the Baptist was a part of that community. Speculation, we don't know. But in the Qumran community, They believe that when God ushered the end of all things, that the last days, when when the end was near, the archangel Michael was going to arrive on the scene and Michael, the archangel, would be in charge of everything. And so, yes, it seemed like they were given too much attention to angels in that community anyway. You know, it really bothered me about 25 years ago. Remember about 25, 30 years ago, everybody was talking about angels. Preachers were doing series after series after series. Angels were the latest fad and everybody was jumping on angels and hanging angel figurines from your rearview mirror in your car. And angels this and angels this. Make a donation of $49.95 to our ministry and we'll send you an angel to put on your day. Angels. And I, I was thinking, 
preachers, stop doing that. You're just, you're just playing into this feeding frenzy on angels because I was thinking that it was, it was taking attention away from Jesus. And so, yes, maybe the writer of Hebrews is talking to that a bit. But in likelihood, that's not his main message. That's not his point. His point was, think of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, the Bible tells us, was mediated by who? Angels. Scripture says... The Old Testament law was mediated by angels. They were the mediators of the Old Covenant. The writer of Hebrews is going to be talking about the New Covenant. Everything in the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. And who's the mediator of the New Covenant? Jesus. Angels were the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And so give your attention to Jesus, not to angels. He points out here in chapter 1, an angel has never been referred to as the son. Yes, in the book of Job, collectively, the angels were called sons of God. But never has there been an angel referred to as the son. But that's what Jesus is. Not only is he superior to the angels, but notice what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in verse 6. Let all God's angels worship him, worship Jesus. The angels are to worship Jesus, just like we do. In fact, you read the great worship passages in the Bible like Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And what do you see? You see all the angels in heaven worshiping Jesus. Let all the angels worship him. Angels are messengers of God. They are servants of God sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Thank God for, for angel. Maybe you've entertained an angel unaware. Thank God for angels. But you certainly don't give angels the attention that you ought to give to Jesus. And Jesus is eternal, he says here in chapter 1. The heavens are going to perish, but Jesus is eternal. Bible says that's why we're not to worship this world or love this world too much. John says in 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or the things of the world because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And by the way, he goes on to say, if you love the world, guess what? This world and all that's in it is going to perish. So if you're loving the things of the world too much, You're worshiping things that are going to come to an end. Verse 13 he says here, One of these days all things are going to be put under the feet of Jesus. Philippians 2.11 says, One of these days every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So again, keep your focus on the Son, 
Jesus. And then thirdly this morning, I want you to see the admonition given. Pick up reading with me in in chapter 2. He says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the first warning passage given in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is structured for those who love organization and love structure. The book of Hebrews is structured around a series of warning passages. Warning passages. And this is the first of the warning passages. Again, what's the message? The old message proclaimed by angels, the Mosaic law. Under the old covenant, the people were to listen and they were to obey. If the old covenant was inferior to the new covenant, and yet any transgression and neglect was punished in the old covenant, how much more will we be held responsible under the new covenant? Folks, you read some of those passages in the old covenant, like in the book of Joshua. Remember when they were going up to Ai? They just conquered Jericho. They were going up to Ai. And remember there was sin in the camp. Remember the punishment that they suffered. You remember that? How about in Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Remember Saul. He was to destroy the Amalekites. And not spare anything. And yet Saul allowed the people. To keep the best of the good. God came and and judged them. And he took the kingdom away from Saul. Remember some of those passages. In the Old Testament. Where the judgment of God. Fell on the people. Well the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you and I have even a greater amount of God's revelation, we we stand in a privileged position because we we have more than they had. If they were punished under the old covenant, what's gonna happen to us under the new covenant who have even more if we neglect such a great salvation? He's saying, folks, let the old covenant be a testimony to you that God judges unbelief. He deals with sin. And to whom much is given, much is required. There's accountability. There is greater accountability for me and you than the people in Moses' day. Greater accountability, not less. You know, we tend to think, you know, since we live under grace and not the law, hey, we're forgiven anyway, so let's just run out and sin. 
the Bible, the New Testament does not say that at all. We have a greater accountability. The Bible says one of these days we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me give you the best case scenario and the worst case scenario of somebody who neglects their salvation in Jesus. Best case scenario, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and your work in your life is nothing more than wood, hay, or stubble. It's burned up, yet you're saved. You're saved because you were a believer. But the testimony of your life, you have nothing to show for it. Worst case scenario, a professing Christian stands before the, 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 the judgment seat of Christ. And guess what? By a life of continued sin, a life of continued disobedience, that person was shown that he was never converted to begin with. Wasn't even a believer. Either scenario, to whom much is given, much is required. Just because you and I live in New Testament times under grace and under law does not mean that you and I can take for granted what we have in Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand. I, see, I fully believe that the New Testament teaches... Once saved, always saved. If you've been genuinely saved, you can't lose your salvation. But does that mean that a life of neglect is not going to be held accountable before God? doesn't mean that at all. You're going to be held accountable. Are you neglecting what you have in Jesus Christ? Are you neglecting? Is, is God calling you to the mission field and you're neglecting that call? Deal with it now. Is there some sin in your life that God's convicting you to deal with but today you haven't? Deal with it now. Is God calling you to the ministry? Deal with it now. Whatever God is calling on you to do, don't procrastinate. Deal with it. Don't neglect what you have in Jesus Christ. With great privilege comes great responsibility. I want to ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know Christ? God is not working apart from his son. If you think there's a plan B of salvation that does not involve Jesus, I've got news for you. There's not. There's not. Do you know him? Is he speaking to you today? If he's speaking to you today, drawing you to faith in Jesus Christ, you need to listen. And you need to believe. 
Jesus is worthy, I want to say to all of us, He is worthy of all honor and praise and devotion in our life. He's not just a king, He's the King of kings. He's not just a Lord, He's the Lord of lords. To the architect, He is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, He's the bright and the morning star. To the butcher, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. To the baker, he's the bread of life. To the carpenter, he's the master builder. To the diplomat, he's the prince of peace. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the electrician, he's the light of the world. To the florist, he's the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. To the geologist... He's the rock of ages. Jesus Christ is everything. And he's worthy of your praise and adoration and your worship. And he is more than sufficient to meet every need that you have. Whatever need you're going through, he can bear you up and he can carry you along. That's why the scripture says... You can cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful section of the book of Hebrews. God, this is your word. This is your inspired word. And it points us to your son, the Lord Jesus. God, as I said at the beginning of the message, I pray that there would be nothing in our lives that would be robbing our devotion and affections away from Jesus. Lord, it's easy to do in this world. We get up in the morning, we go about our day. Pretty soon the weeks, the months, the years have clicked by. And it's so easy to let other things move in that start gaining more and more attention and more and more affection in our lives. Lord, as believers, help us to repent of that. Help us to say, Father, whatever is in my life that is stealing devotion away from Jesus... Father, get rid of it. Lord, have a, help us to have the courage to make a prayer like that. Lord, we read our Bibles in the Old Testament and we see that the people around the Israelites were oftentimes given to idols. And we think, we don't have idols today in 2018. But yes, we do. We have modern day versions. Forgive us. Again, God, rivet our attention upon Jesus. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's our refuge, our tower of strength. A present help in time of trouble. He's our shield, our defender, our deliverer, our savior, 
our shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Lord, today and this week, teach us how daily we can keep our affection more on Christ. I pray that every morning, God, we would get up at the start of the day and say, Father, help me to see Jesus today. Help me to keep my attention and my worship and praise upon Him. And Lord, I do pray for that one this morning who's going through struggles. Let them know that just as you created them, you can uphold them. You can sustain them and provide for them. May we trust you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.